You're listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast, as Pastor Jared teaches on the Upper Room Discourse in John. If you'd like more information, visit us at tulsabible.org. Many of you guys are are familiar with the uh, um, all-too-familiar Dr. Seuss book uh, turned movie, The Cat in the Hat, right? And some of you who aren't as familiar with this story. I've got little kiddos. We talk about these, these stories all the time when we read these books uh, every once in a while. It seemed to have progressed more out of that stage as of late, but let me just kind of rehearse for you a little bit about what happens in this story. In The Cat in the Hat, there's two, uh, two kids that are sitting in their home on a rainy day, bored out of their minds right? And they're just looking for something to do. They want something to do. They're actually pretty well-behaved kids for the most part. Mom's gone for a little while. Uh, Dad's nowhere in sight. And so they have this whole house where they just have to bear and grin it for the, the rainy day that's upon them. And lo and behold, this cat comes to the front door and makes his way into the house. And this is not your ordinary uh, furry feline that just walks in. This is a, a gentleman cat with a hat who speaks English and is sophisticated and and all these great things. And as soon as the cat comes into the house, he immediately begins to, just as every cat owner knows, wreak havoc on the house. Uh, Things start happening that are out of the kid's control, and they don't even understand why they're happening or who brought these things into their house at the moment. And it's getting chaotic, and it's going all kinds of crazy places. Uh, They're worried about mom and dad coming home and what's going to happen to the house, but the cat just seems like he's got everything together in all perfect timing in a perfect world. And right in the middle of this chaos, all of a sudden, the cat goes to this, this red box, and opens this, this red suitcase that he brought with him to the house, and out of this suitcase pops uh, two things. Actually, it's thing number one and thing number two. And thing number one and thing number two are the characteristic, quintessential um, enemy of all parents on the planet. Uh, thing number one and thing number two just make this whole house a circus. If you thought it was crazier with just the cat in the hat, it couldn't get crazier. Uh, think again with thing number one and thing number two. Thing number one and thing number two just do what they do. They, they let these kids go crazy. It's chaos. There, there's all out just disorder everywhere in the house. They're having a great time and things are going wonderful. And just as all the chaos is at a height, at the, the climax of the disorder is happening, there's a a little distinct sound in the heads of the kids, and they can hear mom pulling back up in the driveway. Lo and behold, cat in the hat's not worried about that one bit at all. In fact, he's got another machine for the kids. It's the automatic cleaner, multi-armed picker-upper. And the cleaning machine just goes to work picking everything up, cleaning the house, and then before mom can even get in the door right as she's coming in, the house is perfectly calm and clean like the cat in the hat had never been there before. And the reason why I'm sharing this story with you before is, and I want to just back up a little bit and think about thing number one and thing number two, because we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning. In the Christian life, two things are involved. And theologically, 
the word that we use to describe the Christian life is, is sanctification. It's, a, it's the process by which we are becoming more holy, more like Christ on a daily basis throughout our Christian walk with the Lord. Uh, but two things are involved. There is an active participation for the believer, him or herself. We pursue holiness, Hebrews says, without which nobody will see the Lord. And yet, passively, the Holy Spirit is also, at the same time, working in our hearts and our lives to draw us closer to the person of Christ and to live a life that is transformed and more pleasing to God. And it's not just one or the other. As Christians, when we walk the Christian life, it's not just us using all of our power, all of our mind, all of our ability to, to walk closer to God. We need the Holy Spirit, and it's not just the Holy Spirit that's controlling us. It's also our active participation in that that describes the Christian life. And evangelicals would agree that both God and the human element must be involved in the Christian life. Um, this morning, we're, we're continuing our sermon series on the Upper Room Discourse. And what I've called this is the vital signs for believers. In fact, Jesus covers many vital aspects of our walk with him that, that he gives to the disciples before he is taken and goes to Gethsemane and ultimately to the cross. And, and so far we've seen the vital aspect of generous love for one another. We've seen genuine knowledge, chapter 14. Last week we saw growing dependence, the vine and the branches passage in chapter 15. Today I want to talk about the gracious advocate and two items related to the Holy Spirit as we see him described in this passage of Scripture. You're going to see the number one, the promise of the Spirit from Christ. And number two, you're going to see the priority of the Spirit. What is the, what is the priority ministry of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives? And it's interesting because the Holy Spirit is mentioned exactly five times in probably four chapters in the Gospel of John. And so we're not going to spend a ton of time on each of these passages. I'm going to center really on the first couple more than anything else. But um, you have to take everything that John says about the Holy Spirit to understand exactly the ministry and how it's described in the Upper Room Discourse. And so you see it right away, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. We'll read that verse as we begin. Later on in chapter 14, verse 26 is another verse. Chapter 15, 26 and 27. Chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. And there's an explanation given there in chapter 16. And finally, there's some final words about the Holy Spirit in chapter 16, verse 12 through 15. The, the reason why I'm listing out these passages for you, this is not marginal in the Upper Room Discourse. The Holy Spirit is not a side topic added on to something else. The Holy Spirit is one of the main points of what Jesus wants to say and how he says it as he's giving his final words to the disciples. And really, this is not the first time that Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit in the gospel. It won't be the last time that he speaks of the Holy Spirit. If you want to start, really, what we need to do is we need to go back actually to John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And that's where he starts with the Holy Spirit's ministry. And I think I've got these verses up 
up for you. Some of this is small text. I apologize for that. But I just want to read this, and if you want to, you can turn back to John chapter 3 as a way of introducing the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Gospel of John, okay? Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus by night. And he has questions for him. He wants to talk to him. Okay, so Nicodemus says to Jesus, John chapter 3, verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Jesus was talking about being born again. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. He continues on in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then here's the metaphor that he uses to describe the Spirit's ministry. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The most vivid illustration Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit is the wind. And more than anything, this communicates the elusiveness of the Spirit of God and the mysterious aspect that is encompassed in the character of God as it relates to the Holy Spirit. Um, John Golden Gay wrote a a wonderful Old Testament introduction um, through Uh, a theological work that he had did a two-volume series, and here's what he says about the Holy Spirit. He pointed out that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, wind suggests something that is mysterious, invisible, and dynamic in power, reflecting the dynamic power of God. Now, Jesus' words are purposeful here when he talks about the Holy Spirit, and they're also beneficial for us. But at the very outset, before we get into any of the details of these passages in the Upper Room Discourse, anyone who teaches on the Holy Spirit in general and the Spirit of God in particular needs to reckon with the elusiveness of the Spirit of God. We need to reckon with the mysterious nature that is the Holy Spirit. Bernard Ram a great theologian and uh, exegetical commentary on the Gospel of John. He says, to profess to know a great deal about the Spirit of God is contrary to the nature of the Spirit of God. There is a hiddenness to the Spirit that cannot be uncovered. There is an immediacy of the Spirit that cannot be forced into vision. He continues, he says, there is retessence to the Spirit that cannot be converted into openness, and for these reasons, one feels helpless, inadequate, and unworthy to write even a line about the Holy Spirit. Um, years ago, we lived in rural Kansas and did ministry. Most of a, a, our congregation there was farmers. It was a, a great experience for us. If, if any of you guys have... Um, farmed in the past or been in small rural towns in Oklahoma or, or Kansas area, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Very wholesome, um, just wholehearted people that we ministered with. And every great farmer has, has this in their shed somewhere. First of all, they all have a shed, all right? And you don't, it doesn't really matter how big your house is, it matters how big your shed is, all right? The, the tools, can you get your tractor in there, all those kind of things. Every great farmer, have you ever heard of this before, a bush hog? You know what a bush hog is, Jim? You know what a bush hog is. 
You've probably been on one and controlled many. Uh, a bush hog is just this, it's like a massive lawnmower. You attach it to the back of your tractor and you cut all the stuff on the side roads where you got dirt and rock roads. It takes care of everything. But you can do these wide swaths of grass and cut it all really quickly. We could use a bush hog for our soccer field out there. We could cut it in about half the time if we had one. Um, <clears throat> here's what I want to do. In Kansas, if you're on a bush hog, the whole purpose is to, to clear away the brush and make everything look like it belongs and it makes sense. All right, so I want to clear away the brush regarding the Holy Spirit. And I want to start by saying this. Um, God is a mystery. He's a mystery. His character, the Father, in and of himself, part of his nature is he is mysterious in his nature. Um, and it certainly pertains to the Holy Spirit. And, and here's what I don't mean when I say that. When I say that God is a mystery, the Holy Spirit is, functions largely like the wind in mysterious ways, uh, what I don't mean is that God is a puzzle. God is not, we're not taking a piece here and a piece there and slowly putting together a picture and then all of a sudden we've got clarity. You know, we can understand everything. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying God is a puzzle. I'm not saying that God is a riddle. You know, you, you hear these little sayings and you think deeply about them and after a little while you figure out the riddle and you can make sense of it. God is not a puzzle. He is not a riddle. Uh, when I say that God is a mystery, what I'm, what I'm saying is an epistemological claim on the ontological reality of God. Uh, those are two really big fancy words to say that if you're going to know what you know about God, the first thing you're going to say epistemologically, epistemically at its core, is that God is mysterious. And that's a part of ontologically his being. He is mysterious in his nature. He is mysterious in his essence. And the more we know of God, the more we understand how much we don't know of God. We don't know what we don't know, right? Um, and we don't know a lot about God. But the first thing I want to say, just in all humility as we approach these texts, is that failing to recognize that God is mysterious is a failure to recognize the truth of Scripture. A failure to see that God's Spirit works mysteriously like the wind is a failure to see the truth of Scripture. And so there's a lot of humility that we must approach the text with this morning. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Isaiah 55, 8, 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your, your ways. Here's what we know about God. God is invisible. God is untamable. God is incomprehensible. Uh, Rudolf Otto had a great statement about the character of God. He said that God was a, a mysterium tremendum. In Latin, that means a tremendous mystery. Who can ultimately comprehend him? Karl Barth's phrase was uh, that God is wholly other. He is distinct. He is unlike anything or anyone. You know, and, and how, much, how much do you really even know yourself, let alone the character of the infinite God? 
We learn more about ourselves all the time, and we learn more about God all the time, but we have to acknowledge that we don't know a lot, and so let's approach this with humility. Number one in your outline, number one this morning, the gracious advocate. Let's talk about the promise of the Spirit. Look down at chapter 14. First, let's read, um, starting in verse 16. John 14, verse 16. Jesus says here, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Now, ESV's word for the Holy Spirit is another helper here. Uh, If you have the King James Version, it'll say another comforter. The Needs Improvement Version, the NIV Version, I'm sorry, uh, that was a mistake there. The NIV is still a good translation, people. Uh, Another advocate is what the NIV says. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible says another counselor. And the reason why the major interpretations of Scripture, the major versions of Scripture, don't all agree on how to interpret helper, counselor, advocate, um, encourager, perhaps, is because this word is so rich and highly nuanced. When you come to these passages in Scripture where just as many translations translate it in just as many different ways, you know that this is a, a very technical, difficult word to translate. Helper advocate comes from two Greek words. Literally, helper is the, uh, the paraclete or um, parakleo. Para in Greek means alongside of or next to. Uh, kaleo in Greek means one who is called. So the paraclete is the one who is called alongside of or next to, called alongside of us, next to us to walk this thing called the Christian life. And, and I want to mention another verse where this happens. Advocate, this word in Greek, only occurs in the Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John. There's only one other place in the New Testament where you read it. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and that mentions Jesus as an advocate. Uh, here's what that verse says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, advocate in 1 John chapter 2 refers to Jesus. Advocate in the upper room discourse refers to the Holy Spirit. And so there's two advocates for believers. And the ministry of the advocate is um, extremely significant. It um, should be very influential for all of us in our Christian walk. Advocate in 1 John 2 is clearly used in a legal context. A legal advocate is somebody who is professionally qualified to represent somebody. And really to make sure that they have all the rights that are insured to them in the context of a justice system or a a judging context. So if somebody is your advocate, they're gonna stand up for you in a legal context, in a court of law, to make sure that you are getting the rights that you deserve. Have any of you guys seen, uh, let me ask it this way, have you read John Grisham's Time to Kill novel before? You were talking about literature class. Is that one that you had to read in college, Benjamin? Then you just did it otherwise? Um, John Grisham is a, There's 
amazing people that came out of Mississippi. Jerry Rice, the best wide receiver football player, came out of Mississippi. Oprah Winfrey, uh, one of the best talk show hosts ever, came out of Mississippi. John Grisham, one of the best authors. Ever heard of this guy named Elvis Presley? <laughs> the king of rock and roll. He came from Tupelo, Mississippi. Jared Verweil went to college in Mississippi. I'm just, I'm just saying, I don't know if that means anything, probably not. So the story of A Time to Kill, John Grisham wrote an amazing novel. It's, it really is a, a best-selling novel. He wrote it in 1989, it came out, and it's called A Time to Kill. You might have seen the Matthew McConaughey version on screen. It's a really, really great movie that came out, Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, the story takes place in Mississippi, and it's about a father named Carl Lee. And it's, a, just a, it's actually based on a historical account that John Grisham witnessed when he was early on in his legal career. Um, Carl Lee had a daughter who was kidnapped by two men, brutally treated, um, just did unthinkable things to this girl, um, left her almost for dead, tossed her over a bridge into a creek bed, uh, thinking that she was dead. And the story goes on to tell Carl Lee, the father of this girl, and what he did and he, how he took justice into his own hands. He went and he got a hold of those two guys and he killed them. And the, the story is the story of the trial for Carl Lee and if they were going to find him guilty or, or not guilty. Um, at, the, at the very end of the story, it's just a, it's a really gripping plot if you've ever read these uh, court case novels. At the very end of the story, um, there's an interesting thing that happens. And what you need to remember is that Grisham, before he became a writer, he was a lawyer. And so he practiced law. And they're going through the court case. Uh, the lawyers give their final depositions, uh, however you say that. And now it's going to go to the jury to decide, a jury of uh, 12 peers, to decide the fate and the verdict for Carl Lee. And they don't describe, they describe the, in the book, in the movie, they describe the courtroom scene. Um, in the final depositions, they, uh, the camera angle all of a sudden at the end and at the book, it shifts not to in the courtroom. You never hear the jury read the verdict. You never hear the judge uh, affirm the verdict at all. All you are taken to at the end of the story is to outside the courtroom. And outside, there are just masses of people gathered. Uh, this is a small town in Mississippi. Um, the girl that was so mistreated was an African-American girl, and these two guys that mistreated her were, were two uh, white Americans. And so what just brought the racial tension was brought to the end of the story. And, and it skips the scene to the outside of the courthouse, and these masses of people are out there, and it's just deathly quiet. Nobody is saying anything. They're waiting for the verdict to be read. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this little kid bursts through the doors and screams at the top of his lungs outside of the courthouse. He says, innocent. He's innocent. And half the people in the crowd are going, celebrating and so thankful uh, for the verdict. 
and the other half of the people in the crowd are just angry and upset, and how could uh, Carl Lee kill these two men and, and not be found um, guilty in this case? But again, what's, what's really interesting is the verdict that the, that the child pronounces. Because if you were in that jury, if you were in the deliberation, if you were in the reading of the verdict, you know, and John Grisham knows this because he's a lawyer, you know that there are one of two things that they would have said at the verdict. It would have been guilty or it would have been not guilty. And here comes this kid out in the front of the courthouse who says, innocent, he's innocent. Well, no, he's not innocent, but that's exactly what he says, and and he says it for a reason. Uh, John Grisham wasn't making a mistake there. He wrote innocent for a reason, and the reason is, is because in that situation, the lawyer who represented him went from being a lawyer to an advocate somebody who is pleading for his rights, somebody who is standing up for another person to ensure fair treatment, somebody who stood in his place for him. Jesus is described in 1 John chapter 2 as our advocate, somebody who stands in our place. Um, He's an advocate who is uh, for us and wants the best for us. He is advocate in us, is what we're seeing in 1 John chapter 2 and what we're seeing in John in the Upper Room Discourse. We have an advocate that is in heaven standing for us before God. And listen, a lot of us, I used to think about it this way. I would think that here's Jared standing before the perfect justice of God the Father. And Jesus comes and he stands in my place for me. And I would think, God, I am, I am uh, guilty. Uh, guilty as charged. I have violated your law. I have sinned against you. I have done things that you have told me are sinful, and therefore I deserve condemnation. Um, and I would think that Jesus is standing in my place pleading with the Father for mercy, Please, just, just, show, just show mercy. That's not the role of an advocate. An advocate pleads for justice. An advocate pleads for fair rights. Jesus is the one standing before the Father saying, this is not for mercy, this is for justice. You've already paid the penalty for him. You've already done what is necessary for him to have eternal life. And so, even by your very own standard, he is getting justice because I have died for him. The Holy Spirit stands as our advocate, not in heaven as Jesus does, but on earth. And not outside of us, but inside of us. He is our advocate before the world, the flesh, and the devil. He is our advocate before ourselves. That even when we question whether or not we deserve to be in God's family, we deserve to be children of God. The Holy Spirit is saying, no, you are a child of God. Here is justice. Here are your full rights as a son or of a daughter of the Father. This is family terminology, and this is the Holy Spirit working for us um, at every single level. There are two words for another. It's not just that we have an advocate. It's that we have another advocate. And in Greek, there's two words for another. You can be a heteros, another, which means another of a different kind, 
Or you can be alas, another, which means another of the same kind. The Holy Spirit is another of the same type, the same kind as Jesus. He is another advocate that is similar in type to Jesus. Um, Verse 17, he dwells with you and he will be in you. And up until this point, even in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and empower people. He empowered the judges in the Old Testament, empowered David to do amazing things. Uh, The Holy Spirit would fill people in the Old Testament. But now in the New Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit would do something completely different. The Spirit would indwell, be inside believers. They would be our hope for the eternal life that is before us, our guarantee that we too can um, come into the inheritance of the Father that's been promised to us and reserved for us by the Spirit of God. There's so much that we can say about the promise of the Spirit, but that's at least what Jesus is saying by Him being our advocate. Number two, not only is there a promise of the Spirit, there's a priority of the Spirit. Skip down to verse 26 and verse 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom you have from the Father, whom I will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Bruce, this is kind of going back to some of the stuff we were talking about this morning. Um, Skip over to chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, twice now, the Holy Spirit's been called the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, about Jesus. Now, we're talking a lot about the Holy Spirit, but it's important not to separate the Holy Spirit's work completely from the Father or from the Son. We believe that there is one God, that they are inseparable in essence, in, in nature, Uh, But we believe that there are three distinct persons to this one essence who is ultimately God. He has revealed himself in three distinct persons. Notice how all the persons of the Trinity are mentioned in these verses. In chapter 14, verse 26, the Father sends, the Spirit teaches, the Son speaks. In chapter 15, verse 26, the Son sends from the Father, the Spirit witnesses, gives testimony of the Son, Jesus Christ. The priority of the Spirit in chapter 14 is teaching. In chapter 15, it's testifying. The Spirit's job is to teach and to testify. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin. I claimed Mississippi a little bit earlier, my college days. Uh, I grew up in Wisconsin for most of my life. My, my mom's still up there. Uh, some family members are up there too. Have any of you guys... Uh, don't do this when you're hunting, but any of you guys spotlight deer before? Up in Wisconsin, the deer are everywhere. Um, deer tags go for next to nothing because they got to control the population. They're all over the place so much. But we would go through um, this area, this park area called the Root River Parkway, and we drive about 10 or 15 miles an hour at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning and we'd put this spotlight, you plugged it into your cigarette lighter in your car, and you would shine it out into the woods. And this beam of light, one million candle power, would just shoot out into the woods. You could just, it looked like a Star Wars lightsaber. It was, it was amazing, right? 
and you would just see all these deer. And so when rutting season came around, when uh, mating season came around, anytime you went in the Root River Parkway deer spotlighting, you'd, you'd just see deer all over the place. We'd try to find antlers. You'd see them doing all the things that deers do and deer, deers, deer do, and fighting with their antlers and everything. Um, Jesus, when he says the Holy Spirit's job is to teach and to testify about Jesus, here's what he's saying. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to shed a spotlight on Jesus. It's to put a, put a floodlight on who he is, what he has done for us in the truth of the gospel. Uh, John 14 verse 26 says that the Spirit will teach you all things. And that's parallel to the very next phrase, bring you to remembrance of all the things that I have said to you. Remember, Jesus is talking to the disciples in this context. He's about to go up from them. He's about to go away from them. They're scared. They're terrified. They don't know exactly how it's going to happen or what's going to happen. But you can't take one of those descriptions away from the other to teach you and to bring you into remembrance of everything that Jesus said are, are two parts to a whole. Those things go together. And so the Holy Spirit's ministry in this case was not only to teach them more about what Jesus said, but bring into remembrance everything that Jesus said to them. You kind of wonder why. How in the world is it that we remember the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7? It's because the Holy Spirit's illumination upon the disciples was such so that they could remember everything that Jesus said in that context. The Spirit teaches the disciples are remembering. Those two actions are connected together. And this might be one of the most important principles when it comes to this text. When it comes to the priority of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's priority is not to teach you something new. The Holy Spirit's priority is not to teach you something new, but to understand something that's actually very old. The Holy Spirit is not bringing a new revelation to you that is qualitatively new, but is that but is quintessentially Jesus. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is not bringing revelation that is qualitatively new, but is quintessentially Jesus. And I don't want to downplay the role of the Holy Spirit in any way, but to drive the drive of the Spirit, not only in the Gospel of John, but elsewhere throughout the New Testament, is to point us to the person of Jesus. The Spirit's job is always to direct us to Jesus, his words, his life, his ministry, and the truth of the gospel. The promise of the Spirit is that Jesus is sending the Spirit to guide us, to teach us, but also to bring into remembrance to the disciples the priority of Christ, who he was, what he said, and what he did. There's a promise of the Spirit, and there's a priority of the Spirit. And I want to end with just a few things before we take the Lord's Supper. Number one, very simple. The Spirit is a person. The New Testament says that the Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not just a power. The Holy Spirit is not a nebulous force that's out there, and we've got to some kind of way tap into the force. The Holy Spirit is a person. And in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. 
he will bear witness about me. Chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus depicts the Spirit as teaching, testifying, convicting, and guiding the disciples, and by application, guiding us as believers. Those are actions that are related not to a force, not to a nebulous power, but to a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, and you relate to a person personally. It's not a force that you tap into forcefully. It's a person that you relate to personally. Number two, we don't need as Christians a new word from God as much as we need an old truth from Jesus. As Christians, we don't need a new word from God because God's word is what? Sufficient for everything related to godliness. What we need is an old truth that leads us back to the truth of the gospel and back to the person of Christ over and over again. The ministry of the Spirit is to act as a spotlight to point us to Christ in our relationship to Jesus. J.I. Packer says the Holy Spirit's ministry was a floodlight ministry. And if you go into a dark alley or a dark place, if you've ever been outside on a dark street, you know the difference between a street that's dark with no light and a street that's lit up by a street light or a floodlight. It is totally different. But whenever you go into those places in a dark alley and a light is lighting it up, you never look at the source of the light. You always look at what's around you about what the light is reflecting around you. Jesus is, is what's reflected by the Holy Spirit's light and the truth of the gospel. The point of the floodlight is not to draw attention to the source of the light. It's try to draw your attention to everything else around you and to see it clearly. And the way to see the world clearly around you is to see it through the lens of Jesus and the lens of God's Word. Um, C.S. Lewis has this quote. I think it's really good, and it's not necessarily uh, directed to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but I think this is um, very applicable in this passage. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So by the light of the Holy Spirit reflecting us to the person and work of Christ, we see everything else in the world. But the second we take our eyes away from Jesus is the second we take our eyes off the Holy Spirit as well and what his ministry is attempting to do. The Spirit's work is always Christocentric. The Spirit's work is always centered on Christ so that we can see all things through the lens of Christ. There's a telltale sign. You are being led by the Spirit. Do you want to know, am I being led? Am I being filled by the Spirit? Are you being drawn to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Are you going back to the words of Scripture over and over again? Are you meditating on them? Are you filling your mind with them? Are you being transformed by the power of Scripture? That's how you know you're being led by the Holy Spirit. That's how you know if you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And you will have the fruits of the Spirit that Galatians 5 mentions. Last thing. The gospel is a promise. I don't have a slide for this. The gospel is about a promise that leads to a relationship. The gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is promise, is God's promise to us. 
And for a moment here, I just, as we close, I just want you to forget as, as much as you can do this. I want you to forget about sin. I want you to forget about um, the debt that we owe to God because of our sin. I want you to forget about our need for forgiveness. We're get, we'll come back to that. It's definitely a part of the gospel. You can't get away from it. But instead of sin, I want you to think about the deep needs that you have, the things that really define humanity. To be human is to yearn for things, is to desire certain things. Many of those things we can't get on our own, despite what the culture is telling us. You can get all these things, you can get all these needs met if you do X, Y, and Z is what the culture says. Uh, To be human is to be aware that we do yearn from things and we do have a desire for things. We desire connection. We desire relationship. We desire connection to something outside of us, not just inside of us. We desire meaning. We desire purpose. We desire relationship. The gospel starts with a promise that addresses our deepest spiritual needs. We are broken in a relationship And God brings restoration to us through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit's work in our heart. At the core of the gospel is the promise of a right relationship to God through the Holy Spirit that is given to us at the very moment of saving faith. The gospel is about a promise that ultimately leads to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so if your gospel that you believe lands and ends with Jesus, his death and resurrection from the grave, you don't have a complete gospel. The gospel of Jesus is a promise that ultimately leads not just to the death and resurrection of Jesus three days later, but to the promise of the Holy Spirit that is given to us from God as a seal of our inheritance that is yet to come. The gospel is a promise that leads to a relationship through the Holy Spirit with Christ and a double advocacy of somebody that stands in our place for us, giving us the full rights of children and daughters and sons of the King. There's so much more that I would love to say about the Holy Spirit, but we're going to stop here and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. You've been listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.